I guess I will just give a, a word about the uh, book that my brother just mentioned. Um, some of you may know recently I actually self-published a book um, that really what it is, it, it, it's an exposition of the uh, Beatitudes that we've recently covered in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, taken and adapted from the, some of those sermons that we did. Uh, the title of the book is called The Christian Manifesto, and if you go to the New Harvest Ministries website, or I think tonight I'll, I'll, I'll post a link to it on our Facebook page, you'll uh, be able to find it there. Um, and uh, that, that's just the way if you want to offer some support to, to the work of ministry, you can actually get a tangible uh, book that you can hold in your hands. I know that's how I like to read my stuff, but with the self-promotion aside, uh, John will be forgiven for that. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyways, it's, it's a, a pleasure and, and it's a privilege to uh, join everyone again. I want to invite you to uh, take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the seventh chapter of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, we're going to take just a brief break tonight from our studies in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I think it is more than appropriate to uh, reflect and, and, and think about the, the realities of the impact of our Messiah's having come into this world as we draw near to the Christmas season. So I want to look uh, really in Isaiah chapter 7 through 9, and I would ask if you have a copy of God's Word and, and you're turned to Isaiah 7, why don't you stand uh, for the reading of the Word of God, if you're able. Isaiah chapter 7, and I'll begin the reading with verse 10. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Would you join with me in a word of prayer? Father God, Father, let your glory and let your majesty uh, penetrate us tonight. Uh, dear God, we, we rejoice to have been called into your covenant. We rejoice to have received your grace. Dear Lord, we ask that as we worship tonight, as we offer up spiritual sacrifices unto you, that they would be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight. Lord, we ask that you would bless our time in the word. Uh, we ask that the spirit would be with us and that he would uh, impress these truths upon our hearts. Uh, dear God, in, in your grace and in your loving kindness, uh, assist the preacher and assist the listeners that we may hear from you tonight as we go into your word. It's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen. Well, thank you, and you may be seated. So ob obviously, as I've mentioned, in light of the fact that, you know, the Christmas season is fast approaching, I would like to really take this opportunity tonight to discuss 
some of the great prophecies and promises of Emmanuel that we find near the beginning of the prophet Isaiah. We are going to be looking at some texts that are very well known to us. We can quote some of these things from memory. But really, in order to, by God's grace, help you see even more just how beautiful these passages are, I I really want to show you what these promises and what these scriptures are are saying and how they fit within the original context. Uh, Oftentimes, you know, these verses from Isaiah 7 or Isaiah 9 around Christmas season will be quoted, and and that's very good. But we usually never hear about what was actually going on in Isaiah 7. You know, what was going on in in chapter 8 and in chapter 9, and what was the significance of of these things at the time. And, you know, I've said many times before that it's when we have those Bible verses that are so familiar to us, we we can just quote them from memory, that sometimes what happens is because we, we hear them so much, we forget to really think very deeply about them. And so, so really, I, I'm, I've been looking forward to this study all week, uh, opening up our Bibles together tonight, and, and really want to ask the Lord to bless us as we take a deeper look at some of the most precious promises in the prophet Isaiah. So the first text, and we're really going to move, I'm not going to be able to stop at every single verse just because there's so much we need to get to, but we're really going to do an overview of Isaiah chapter 7 and 9. So we're first going to look at chapter 7. And almost everyone, all of us know verse 14 that says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, you've heard this verse quoted more times than than you can even count. Have you ever stopped and thought about the fact that that verse begins with the word therefore? Now, what is our rule about the word therefore? Well, whenever you see the word therefore, you ask the question, what's it there for? And so that's, that's what we're going to do tonight. And so, so to answer that question, if we just back up to verse 1, we read, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Now the first thing that we read there, in the days of Ahaz, king of Judah, Ahaz, Ahaz is a figure that we read about in 2 Kings chapter 16 and in 2 Chronicles 28. Ahaz begins ruling as the king of Judah in we would approximately say uh, what is 735 B.C. at the age of around uh, 20 years old. And both 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles tell us that Ahaz did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. He was one of those kings who fell into massive idolatry, making metal images for Baal, and even at one point offering up his own sons as burnt offerings, as sacrifices to a false god. And so, really, there's not too much positive that you can say about Ahaz there. 
And so during this, this point in history, the, we have the Assyrian Empire, we have the pagan Assyrians who are east of the land of Israel, they are beginning to expand their reign west, westward towards the people of Israel. And, and of course, at this point, the people of Israel are divided into two kingdoms. We have the northern kingdom of Israel and the more southern uh, kingdom of Judah. And so to combat this threat, you have this, this pagan empire that, that is seeking, that is coming towards you to expand their territory. And so to combat this threat, the kingdom of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, makes an alliance with Syria. Now, that's not to be confused with Assyria. Uh, we're talking about, about Syria, who, who is another tribe of the people of Israel. And so Israel and Syria are intending to force Ahaz, and Ahaz is the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. They are intending to force, to force him to join their alliance in order to combat this threat of this pagan empire that's coming towards them. Well, Ahaz doesn't want anything to do with it. Uh, he commits this, and we read about it in Second uh, Kings 16, he commits a very shameful act of inquiring, actually sending messages to the pagan king of Assyria who is the threat. He inquires of him, asking if he, the pagan, wants to form an alliance with him. Saying in 2 Kings 16, verse 7, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. In addition to this, Ahaz sends him treasure as well. And, and what we see there is this really this tragic scene this, this tragic but historical reality, we have a divided kingdom where you have a king who he's supposed to be a follower of Yahweh, but he is offering up his own children as burnt offerings. He, he is making images for Baal. He's writing to a pagan king saying, I am your servant and I, I am your son. And, and, and he's asking this pagan king if he wants to join him to go to war against another king and the, the king he wants to go to war with is also supposed to be a follower of Yahweh. And, and so this is really just a, a, a tragic, a sad reality because we have already had uh, uh, King David and King Solomon and, and there were these great promises and there were these great blessings that God was going to bring uh, forth. He, he was going to establish justice a king was supposed to come through David. And you have all these, these great promises that are supposed to come from the kings of Israel, and yet the kingdom's divided. And, and the kings are falling, falling into idolatry and all of these different things. And so in the middle of this really heartbreaking, tragic situation, in Isaiah chapter 7, what we are at is this instance in which Ephraim, and that's another name for the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria, they come up to the city of Jerusalem, and they are preparing to mount an attack. And as, as a matter of fact, some of, you, of your study Bibles may have maps where they actually draw this. And if, and if you really look at what was going on there, they were being surrounded almost from all sides. It, it was a devastating uh, thing that the, the people of Jerusalem had to, to face as this is going on. 
Verse 2 says, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And so, to set up that background, what is going to happen in this section of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 7 is that the Lord is going to give comfort and he is going to give reassurance to Ahaz and to the people of Judah. Now, We've already talked about Ahaz's idolatry and and his wickedness, and you may ask the question, well, why would the Lord want to give him hope? Why would the Lord want to give him any encouragement? But he's to such such a wicked and such an idolatrous king, but but you have to remember, Ahaz is king of of Judah, uh, and he is of the house of David. Well, as we already said, God has made his covenant, he has made his promise with David that his offspring was going to sit on the throne of a kingdom that would be everlasting. There were all these promises that God had made with David and with the house of David. And so, just like when when you look at the people during the time of Moses, and, and you ask, well, why is God continuing to care for these people who rebel against Him, who in a moment will start forming a golden calf and all these different things, and you ask, Why is God still helping these people? Well, because he's made promises. He says, I did not choose you because you are better than other nations, but I made a promise to your father Abraham. And it's sort of like the same thing as what's going on in in this passage. It's not that Ahaz or the people of Judah deserve the Lord's blessing, but the Lord has made a promise with them. And, And the Lord is not going to go back on his promises. And by the way, God is just as faithful to us in our lives this day. The Messiah was supposed to come from David. God, at this point in history, he still has a plan for this people. He still has a plan for Judah. And so that is the the background why it is he's going to give comfort to Ahaz. In verse 3, we see, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remalia. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Remalia, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up to Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Now we need to stop there at verse 6. Why? Well, we need to look at this very important detail at the end of verse 6. Judah's enemies are conspiring. They, They are plotting together, and what their plan is is to establish, quote, the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Now, this son of Tabeel, whoever this character is, history does not really tell us much about him, whether biblical history or history outside of the Bible. We just don't know that much about this individual. But the the point that we need to understand is that they were going to set up a new king in Judah, which would end the line of Davidic kings, the, the sons of David, from whom the Messiah was to come. And so that is where you have this great threat. 
Because you have these promises that are made to the house of David that a great king is going to come from the offspring of David and the enemies of Judah are plotting to come in and set up their own king. So Ahaz, he is told in the midst of all this, in the midst of this great threat where his, his city is being surrounded on almost all sides, God is saying, do not fear. He's saying, do not fear. Now there in history, and the Bible talks about it, there, it the invasion of Jerusalem, it's going to happen. It, it, it happens in the Bible. But Ahaz was not going to be conquered, and Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, was going to reign after him. And so God, God is not going to go back on, on his promises. And so verse 7, thus says the Lord God, and he's speaking about the plan that the enemies have to set up the son of Tobiel's king. And the Lord God, Yahweh your God says, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Amalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So this is where we see God, he's, the Lord, he's beginning to give encouragement. He's beginning to give comfort. He's saying that the plan to dethrone Ahaz, the plan to set up a new king, it will not succeed. It will not stand. It will not come to pass. And there's even the added promise that within 65 years... Ephraim will be shattered as a people, no longer recognizable. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the, the history of, of this particular situation, you will see that the Lord's promise does come to pass within the time frame that God had prophesied, or Isaiah, God had spoken through Isaiah, rather. And so what does Ahaz need to do? Well, he needs to be firm in faith. And I think there's a very practical lesson in that, by the way, for us. When we look at the discouragements and the trials in our lives, we have to be able to trust and we have to be able to say God's plans, His, His purposes, God, God never failed. God, God never had a plan that did not come to fruition. But what, what do I need to do? Well, I need to just be firm in my faith. I need to just trust that God is, 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 not, is going to accomplish His purpose plans. He's going to accomplish his purposes. He's not going to fail. His promise to, to keep us, ne to never leave us, to never forsake us. He's not going to go back on his word, but our good shepherd is going to carry us until the very end. It's like that's what we need to do. Obviously, we have things in this world that we're responsible for that we have to do. Don't get me wrong. But first and foremost, sometimes we just need to be told, stay firm, stay calm, stay, stay at, at peace. Believe in God. That's why Jesus can say in John chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And sometimes that's like the first thing that we need to do and it seems so basic, but sometimes it seems so hard. And so we have to ask for God's grace in that. And so in this context of the Lord telling Ahaz to stand firm, to just trust in him, this is when we begin to get into the specific prophecy that we want to look at in this chapter. Verse 10, Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. 
Now, what's, what does that mean? What's going on there? Well, what's happening is that God himself is telling Ahaz, Ahaz, ask for any sign you want. Ask for any sign you want. I will do anything that you want so that you know that this plan to dethrone you will not come to pass. Now, I, I want to stop here and point something out that often gets, gets missed. You see, there is a lot of controversy surrounding this passage of Scripture, and we're going to talk about that stuff. But what, what I want you to do is to just keep in mind the, the kind of sign that the Lord is, is offering to Ahaz. He's saying, let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. You see, what God is saying, God is saying, I will do anything. I will do something absolutely miraculous. I, I, I will twist. I will go outside of nature. I will do anything that I need to do so that you know that my word that I speak to you is true and will come to pass. He is promising to do something absolutely miraculous in order to demonstrate that his purposes for the house of David, which we ultimately know the Messiah was going to come, though his plans, his purposes, they will not be thwarted. And so verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, what's going on there? Well, Ahaz, he's showing like this false piety. I mean, I mean, this is a man, you, you read what the Bible says about him, he was willing to offer up his own sons, his own children as burnt sacrifices to false gods. This is the kind of idolatrous man he is through and through, and yet here when God is telling him something, he, he acts like, no, 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 God, I, I would not want to violate your law. And, and so what the Lord's going to do in the next verse is he's really just going to rebuke Ahaz for, for really his, his cowardice almost. And in verse 13, and he said, and the he there, that's referring to God speaking through Isaiah, he said, well, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Now, you need to notice something here that a lot of people miss. Who is the Lord addressing in verse 13? He's not addressing Ahaz specifically or Ahaz alone, but he is referring to the entirety of the house of David. You see, what makes Isaiah chapter 7 so beautiful is that through and through it is a passage concerning the coming Messiah. If, if you're a Christian, this is a passage about Christ. The Messiah was to come from the line of David David's lineage is threatened in verse 6, and now God is going to give a sign to not just Ahaz, but the house of David itself. For anyone who was trusting in God, trusting in the covenant God made with David, anyone who believes in, that, in God's word, God is telling them something. He is going to let them know that his plans are not going to be thwarted. Ahaz has refused to ask for a sign so now God is going to choose for himself what that sign will be. Verse 14, therefore, and so now, now we, we know what the therefore is. We've talked about the context. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, 
and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. And so here what we have promised, this glorious sign, this wonderful sign that is going to demonstrate to the house of David, to people who were trusting in the promises God has made, that the Lord's plans will in fact come to fruition. The sign that he's going to give, it's going to be one of the Lord's own choosing. And the sign that the Lord your God will choose is that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And ladies and gentlemen, I don't need to explain this to you. As you all know, in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew says that this prophecy is fulfilled when the Virgin Mary conceived and bore a son whom she named Jesus, for he was to save his people from their sins. This is the glorious, this is the miraculous thing that is promised and prophesied through Isaiah back, this is in the 8th century, over 700 years before the time of Jesus, and yet we have a written document talking about a virgin conceiving and being called Emmanuel, which as Matthew interprets means God with us. This is the sign that the Lord himself has chosen. The Lord chooses a sign so that all those, anyone who was hoping in, anyone who was believing in God's covenant with David and all the other prophecies about the Messiah, they could look at this sign of the virgin conceiving and they could look at it and they could know for certain that the Lord's plans were coming to pass. And, and I just think that the beauty of that becomes so much more beautiful after we've looked at really the background in the, of the text and what's going on as we see really how the story of God's Word unfolds. Now, I said there was a controversy in this passage that we need to address. Uh, the controversy surrounds the word virgin, which is the Hebrew oma. Now, why is that word controversial? Well, because of the fact that a large number, perhaps even the majority of critical scholars, and when I say critical, I, I mean people who are critical of the Christian faith, critical scholars will assert, they will say that this word does not mean virgin, but it simply just means young woman. Uh, they will say that if Isaiah wanted to talk about a virgin, there's another Hebrew word he could have used, betula, which more specifically refers to a virgin, one who is sexually pure. And so how do we as Christians respond to that? Because we've just talked about how this is a promise for people who believe in the Messiah and Jesus Christ and how powerful it is, and the New Testament authors quote it of Jesus. So how do we respond when someone comes up to us and raises a subjection? Well, we obviously don't have time to get into every single detail of this debate, but the simple fact of the matter is that the Hebrew word alma, every single time, it is used in the Hebrew Bible, either refers to a virgin or it is used in a context where it's like so vague that you would have no way of knowing if we were talking about a virgin or not. Um, and, 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 but here's the other, this is absolutely fascinating. The Greek Septuagint, now what's that? Well, the Greek Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It comes about 200 years before Christ. Uh, this is the 
Bible that the early church, the apostles, would have used. If you've ever noticed, sometimes when you're reading in the New Testament, if it, it quotes an Old Testament passage, and you flip back to the Old Testament and you wonder why it's not worded the same, it's because your Old Testament's translated from the Hebrew, but the New Testament author is quoting the Greek Septuagint. So that's, this, this is something that was being used 200 years before the time of Christ, and the Septuagint uses the word Parthenos, which always refers to a virgin. And what this does is, is it demonstrates the fact that the Jewish people, even before Jesus was ever born, understood that what this passage was talking about was a virgin birth. Now, I'm sort of more willing to trust the Jewish people who had the Jewish scriptures a little bit more than I would trust a modern liberal scholar who just hates God and hates my faith. <laughs> but but here's, here's the real thing. As Christians, the New Testament... So Jesus' apostles who write the New Testament say that this verse is talking about a virgin birth. And I think as Christians, it's important to look at those other arguments, but what it comes down to is, if Jesus and the apostles believe it, that's good enough for me. <laughs> so, uh, but still, something that I, I just wish our critics would recognize is that in verse 11, and I'll explain why I pointed this out, in verse 11, the Lord told Ahaz that he would perform a sign, quote, as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Now, the Lord is promising to do something massive, something absolutely insane, something that defies the laws of physics and the laws of nature, and some, something that is incredible, something completely unheard of. Well, if verse 14 was just talking about a young woman who was going to have sexual relations and then conceive a child, now I get it, all children are miracles, I'm not saying anything other than that, but that don't really work for a sign that's as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. I mean, the Lord is promising to do something massive, and yet the liberal critical scholars look at this and say, oh, no, 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 it's, this is just talking about that. And, and, and so, really, it is just, and this is not a, a technical uh, terminology, but it's just silly. It's, it's just silly to say that Isaiah 7 is talking about anything other than a virgin birth. The reality is that our Messiah, the Lord, the, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, did in fact, almost 2,000 years ago, He came into this world and He did so by means of the womb of a virgin whose name was Mary. That is a historical reality. That is a historical fact. It's not a myth. It's not, it's not a fable. It's not an allegory. It, it is a fact of reality. And isn't it fitting that, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, shouldn't He have a miraculous entrance into the world such as this? And, and so as glorious and as spectacular as this miracle is, we must also remember that the truthfulness of the virgin birth has a very practical impact on the lives of every single person here tonight. And every single person outside of those doors, every single person in your family, every single person you work with, here's the, the thing. You are a human being. You're a human being. Now, 
I, I hope that doesn't shock you when I say that. But you are, in fact, a human being. And as a human being, you're a descendant of a man named Adam. Now, in Adam, in him, all of mankind has fallen into sin. Now, God, he is holy. He hates sin. He abhors sin. He detests sin. His holy and, and, his, and righteous law demands that sin be punished. He will in no wise clear the guilty, as the Scripture says. Now, the reality is that you and, and, and everyone outside of those doors, as a human being, as a child of Adam, if left unto your own devices, you would continue in your sin, you would continue in your rebellion each and every day until one day God's patience ceases and He strikes you down. The glory, the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ is as follows. God sent His Son, who is truly divine. He is God Himself, to be born of a virgin named Mary. In this act of choosing a virgin's womb, what God the Son does is he takes upon himself a true human nature. The same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man. Basically, think about it like this. Everything that God is, Jesus is. And everything that man is, except for sin, Jesus is. That's what it means for Jesus to have two natures, a, a divine nature and a human nature. Everything that God is, Jesus is. Everything that man is, except for sin, Jesus is. He is one person in two natures, truly God and truly man. His humanity does not intermingle with or take away from his divinity. Neither does his divinity take anything away from his humanity. He is not parted he is, or divided into two persons, but is one and the same, only begotten Son, God, Logos, Lord Jesus Christ. Just as the prophets taught from the beginning about Him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ Himself instructed us, and as the creed our fathers handed down to us. You ask, why does that matter? That's a, a, those are words that I haven't heard before. That's, that's, that's strange to my ears. Well, it matters for this reason. Because of the fact that Jesus, by means of being born of the Virgin Mary, truly God, truly man, the God-man, he is able to do something that you cannot, that I cannot. And that is this. He can live a perfect and sinless life. We break God's law. Jesus fulfills God's law. We talk about and this, I realize it's a theological term, but we talk about the active obedience of Christ. And what we mean when we say that is that Jesus actively does good works. He actively lived perfectly in his life. He fulfills God's law. Therefore, when he, in perfect accordance with the will of his Father, decides that he is going to lay down his own life, 
No one takes his life from him, but he lays it down of his own accord. He lays down his life upon his cross. He, in that moment, is the unique person who is able to be the sin bearer for all of his elect people. For it is in his humanity he is able to bear the transgressions of the many and be united to his people, fulfilling what was spoken to Mary. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. He, in his high priestly role, offers up his own life as a sacrifice to the Father so that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw nigh unto God through him since he ever lives to make intercession for them. Therefore, what was spoken of by the prophet Joel is fulfilled. All who shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I will interpret that for you. The promise is this. Anyone who repents of their sin, who turns to the Lord Jesus Christ in true faith, Jesus Christ, who is truly God, truly man, you will be forgiven of your sins. God will seal you with His Holy Spirit. You will be united because Christ became a man. Us as men and, and women, of course, are able to be united with Him. We, we, we don't have a high priest who is unaware of the sufferings that we go through. Jesus, in this life, He knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to be thirsty. He knew what it was like to be tempted. Yet He did all of this, and when you and I get hungry, we, we become angry, we become thirsty, we become impatient, we get tempted to sin and we fall into that sin. Jesus, He was hungry and He lived, say, righteous. He was thirsty and He lived righteous. The devil himself tempted Him, offering up the nations of the world to give to Him, and Jesus resisted that temptation. So Jesus, He can relate to us because He knows the struggles of this life. He knows what we go through, but He does it perfectly. And so in His humanity, we are able to be united with Him in His death, in His burial, in His resurrection, so that by means of our faith in the Holy Spirit working in our lives, we are given new life. We are raised with Him in His resurrection, and we receive the gift of everlasting life and the forgiveness of our sins. This is the hope. This is the promise for all of humanity. And it is because God's Son took on humanity Himself that this is able to happen. And the way in which he did it was through a virgin that the prophet Isaiah had uttered over 700 years prior in order to give hope to those who were trusting in the covenant that God had made with David. You see, 700 years after these words of Isaiah were spoken, God does this miraculous thing which is as deep as Sheol and as high as heaven. And what it is, is that it is a sign to the people who trusted in Him. It is a sign to people who believe in His Word saying, look, you see this virgin named Mary who has just conceived and given birth? Do you know what that means? That means that my plans are coming to pass. That means that I have not failed. That means that my promises will be kept. 
That's what the virgin birth means. And you and I, we no longer have to wait with anticipation, wondering how and when God will fulfill these promises. He has already, in the past, fulfilled them, and they stand true to this very day. Now, of course, you're also aware that just two chapters later, in Isaiah chapter 9, there is also another wonderful promise about the birth of the coming Messiah. And so have, have you ever wondered, how are these two texts connected? How do they relate to, to one another? Well, obviously, as much as I'm sure we would all love to, we don't have time to just walk through every single verse. So we have to just kind of give an overview of things. And so what we are going to see in the rest of chapter 7 and in chapter 8 is what we've already talked about, and that is the coming Assyrian invasion. Now, God has already instructed the people that they do not need to fear because His plans for the house of Judah uh, were not going to be thwarted, but God never promised that He would not bring judgment upon them. Uh, After all, Ahaz is is a wicked ruler, a great idolater, and God's justice will be brought to bear. And so in Isaiah chapter 8, verses five, verse 5 through 8, we read, The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flowed gently and rejoiced over resin in the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, The Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Now we've already mentioned that in 2 Kings 16, Ahaz he writes for the Assyrians to, to help. And so what that, what that does, when Ahaz does it, is it demonstrates the lack of faith that he has in God's provision and in God's protection. That is why we read in, in verse 6 there, this people has refused the waters of Shiloh, referring to a stream of, of water in Judah. Now the tragic irony of the situation is found in verse 7. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, that's, that's the Euphrates River, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. You see, the irony is this, the Assyrians, whom Judah sought out as their savior, will now become their greatest threat. And in a devastating case of irony, Isaiah prophesies, and it will sweep on into Judah It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel, as you know, that means God with us, and that was the name of the child that was promised back in chapter 7. Judah is supposed to be a land that worships God and has God with them, but they've sought out not God's help and God's protection, but they went to a pagan king. And and so what God's saying is, therefore, that pagan king whom you trust more than me, O Emmanuel, yeah, he's going to come and he is going to wreak havoc on you. Chapter 8 continues to describe this dreadful judgment that is coming upon them. 
and ends in verse 22, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Now, we have a problem here, don't we? Because, you know, what we were talking about in chapter 7, the whole point of all of that was that God was not going to forsake the promises He made to Judah and to the house of David. And thus, that was why they needed to trust in Him. And what we see now, though, is that God promises Judah's seeming destruction, that this is just this terrifyingly dark, uh, dreadful thing. And so you ask the question, well, did God change His mind? Has has He he turned His back on His promises? Is is there no hope for Judah? Well, that's when we get into chapter 9. Verse 1 of chapter 9 says, But there will be no gloom for her who was, past tense, in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, there's a lot of names and places in there that it's like, you know, show me where Zebulun is on on a map, right? I, I get that it sounds jarring when you hear that, but Really, this verse is fascinating. The prophet speaks of Zebulun and Naphtali, which those are in the northern kingdom of Israel, interestingly enough, rather than the southern kingdom. And, he, and God, he's promising glory, restoration to them, but not to them only. You see, the verse goes on to say, in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And that phrase in the Hebrew, of the nations, can also be translated, of the Gentiles. You see, the promise, and this is so amazing, is that God is not only going to restore the divided kingdom of Israel, but when He does so, in the languages in the latter time, it's a future promise, future when Isaiah was saying it, is that all of the nations, the Gentiles, people outside of the land of Israel will be redeemed as well, will be made glorious as well. Not just one small sliver of land in the Middle East, but the whole entire world. Verse 2 says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle to molt and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire." Now, what is promised in those verses is is this incredible increase of joy being freed from their oppressors. Now, these promises of this great rejoicing and this great salvation and this glorious redemption, these promises are made in the context of great judgment and trial coming upon the covenant people. So, How exactly is God going to bring about this glory? How is He going to bring out this joy and this redemption and this salvation? The answer is given in verse 6. And it says, 
for, that word for, think, you know, because of or therefore, the word for there is an explanatory device. The promises made earlier are being explained in this way, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen, indeed. I, we, we can unmistakably see a connection between this and what was promised back in 714 that the virgin is going to conceive and bear a son the name, you shall call his name Emmanuel, it means God with us. And in verse 6 of chapter 9, the son who is going to be born is going to be called El Gabor, mighty God. So you see, the glorious redemption of the people of Israel and of Judah, as well as, you know, Galilee of the Gentiles, the, the whole world, redemption is going to come through the offspring of a virgin's womb. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. We read, quote, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Government, what's that mean? Well, it just means like dominion and, and power and sovereignty and authority. He is going to possess all of that. And the promised son is here given four names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Wonderful counselor, the Hebrew, that's Pele Yoetz. The word Pele, which is translated as wonderful, what that does is it emphasizes that this is something extraordinary. This is something unusual. This is something miraculous, perhaps something hard to comprehend. This coming son is, is wonderful counselor in that his wisdom and, and his insight and his judgments will far exceed even that of someone like Solomon, who was the son of David, and who himself, I, th I think, is a shadow of Jesus Christ. He's going to have wonderful wisdom, and he's going to exercise it. That's why he's called Wonderful Counselor. Now, the other one, Mighty God, El Gabor. We mentioned this earlier as making the connection between this and the promise in 714. And this is something also that demonstrates the fact that only Jesus Christ can be the fulfillment of this passage. We talked earlier about how Jesus, He's one person, two natures, a divine nature, human nature, God in human flesh, and the text in Isaiah makes it quite clear that the Son who is to be born, that those are human words, human beings are, are born are, are children that, that are born from a womb, the son that is to be born will be called El Gabor, will be called Mighty God. That, that is a claim to deity right there, my friends. The next, Aviad, Everlasting Father. A large number of Hebrew scholars would actually say that it should be translated Father of Eternity. Uh, this verse is not saying that Jesus is God the Father, uh, what it's saying is that the son who is to be given will, is the progenitor, is the originator of time itself. 
eternity comes from Him. Therefore, this child that is to be born is one who has existed and exists already and has existed from even before the beginning, before there was even time, because He created time. Once again, that's something that can only be said about God who has no beginning, who's the Alpha and the Omega. And this is applied to Jesus Christ Himself. The next one, we've talked about this on Sunday night before, but Siar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. Now this phrase is, is greatly amplified in its impact when we remember the historical context of the passage. What was going on in, in the land of Israel and Judah at the time? Well, you have this great Assyrian invasion that, that is coming from the east, And dread and and terror and and destruction is what is in the people's view. And yet the child who is to be born, the son who is to be given, he, and this is in Zechariah chapter 9, but it says that he will put an end to chariots, he will speak peace to all the nations. Jesus is called the Siar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. He will put an end to this warfare. He will put an end to bloodshed. He will put an end to violence. Verse 6 has already said that the government will be upon his shoulder. So here we have a clue as to what his reign, what what his kingdom is going to be like. It will be one that is marked with peace, with shalom. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, for if it was, my, my, my men would be fighting. My servants, my followers would be fighting. But they are not fighting because my kingdom is not of this world. And, and it's not that Jesus doesn't reign in earth because he has all authority in earth uh, and heaven. But his kingdom is not worldly. It's not like the kingdoms of this world. His is one of peace. Whereas we look at the nations of our world and and they just seem to be consumed with with warfare. And so with these wonderful promises and these titles in mind, verse 7 then gloriously proclaims, quote, of the increase or the enlargement of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. This then is how the restoration of the divided kingdom, and as we saw earlier, the the whole world, Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles, this is how the restoration is going to come to pass. It is going to come to pass when a virgin conceives bears a son who is Emmanuel. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, and Prince of Peace. His rule, His authority, His reign, His sovereignty, and the peace that He brings to the world is going to continually increase forevermore. There shall be no end. Earlier we talked about the the promises that God had made to the line of David, and we see that this coming ruler who was supposed to be David's offspring that would sit on David's throne over his kingdom. And this text in Isaiah says he's going to establish and uphold the kingdom. Now think about that. The kings of Israel were established with Saul, but he, being a mortal man and a sinner at that, could not possibly uphold it forever. Why? Because he would die. You know, even David took his place and David's sons after him and so on and so forth. But this new king that is coming, he will not only establish his reign, but he personally is going to be the one that upholds it forevermore. It's sort of like the the priests, the high priest in the Old Testament 
first had to make a sacrifice year after year after year for their own sins and for the sins of the congregation. Then he would die. Another priest would take his place. Jesus is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He holds his priesthood continually. And just as he holds his priesthood continually, here in Isaiah it says he holds his kingdom and his rule and his authority forever as well. And he will rule with justice and he will rule with righteousness. Think about Ahaz, who was reigning at this time. He, he was neither just, uh, nor was he righteous. He was a coward, and he was an idolater. He did not rule justly, and he did not live righteously, even in his own private affairs. But this king, who is to come, he's not going to fall into sin like even David did. No, he will reign perfectly with justice and with righteousness. Now, a question that needs to be addressed, when exactly does this rule begin? Uh, All Christians believe that Jesus came into this world 2,000 years ago, born of a virgin, but there would be some who would say that this kingdom of God, well, that's that's a future thing. That, That does not come maybe until Christ returns or something like that, but the fact of the matter is this text here in Isaiah says, from this time forth and forevermore. And when it says, from this time forth, it means that his reign, his rule, his government, his authority, his sovereignty begins at the time that the child is born. The truth is that when Jesus Christ came into this world, what, was, what are the first words he says in the Gospel of Mark? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom is in your midst. He says, the kingdom is upon you. And then what does he do? He he goes to the cross, he's buried, he rises again, and he says, all authority, all of it, in heaven, on earth, who's it belong to? It's been given to me. That's why in John 12, Jesus talks about the glory of the cross, and he says, that the ruler of this world, who is Satan the devil, will be cast out. So that what? He can no longer deceive the nations. It doesn't mean that the devil is, is not you know, still seeking to devour us or that we don't have to worry about the devil uh, tempting us or anything like that. But the devil will no longer be able to deceive the nations. Because who is going to be redeemed in Isaiah chapter 9? The nations, the world. Christ, it belongs to Christ, my friends. Now we look around us and what do we do? We see the sin in the world. We see, we see death and we see destruction and disease and famine. We see what's going on in the Middle East. We see warfare. We see the fact that in our own state of Ohio, uh, the, not, not even just the leaders, but the, the citizens of Ohio themselves have exercised democracy to vote to enshrine child murder into their own constitution. And so you look at that and, and someone says to me, Logan, you look at what's going on in the world and you really believe that, that Jesus is reigning and he has all authority in heaven and on earth and he's going to increase his government and there will be no end? You really believe that? Well, yes, I do. Why? Because my faith is not based upon my perception of reality. My faith is based upon what God reveals to me in his word. That, think about what's going on with, with Ahaz. When Ahaz is looking at the, all the destruction around him, he's told to stand firm. Trust in the Lord. You, people, I know Christians, we just get so distressed with everything that's going on, and it's like 
we just want to sit around, we just want to pray for the rapture, that we just get out of this place. But, but who does this world belong to? It don't belong to the devil. He's been cast out, according to John chapter 12, so that he can no longer deceive the nations. Who has all authority in heaven and on earth? Jesus Christ does. Jesus Christ does, and the Bible says that the wicked, though they boast now, you look a little while, guess what? They will be there no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. Why? Because our King Jesus Christ, He establishes His throne and He upholds it forever. And so how on earth could Christ be reigning right now with all of the terrible things that that, that are going on in the world? Well, the promise in Isaiah says of the increase of his government in peace there will be no end. The promise is that there, there, there's an increase, which means that from the time of Jesus' ascension to 2023 until he, the second coming, he returns again, his kingdom is going to grow. Like the kingdom of God can be compared to what? Like a mustard seed. He says it's one of the smallest seeds. It's just real small. You, you, you know, you would miss it if you glance at it. But what does the mustard seed do? It grows and it sprites into a mighty organism. That's what the, Jesus says the kingdom of God is like. We just have to trust in him as Christians and we have to obey the Great Commission and, and go therefore and be brave and speak the gospel truth for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so what is the solution to the, the craziness and the sin that's going on in the world, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the fact that you and I can look at Joe Biden or we can look at or, or anyone and we can say 2,000 or some years ago, the virgin conceived and bore a son. His name was Emmanuel, and guess what? He has sat upon his throne and he is ruling right now and the promise of scripture is that he must reign until all his enemies are put under his feet so as psalm 2 says kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way because psalm 2 i mean the lord said to my lord ask me and i will make the nations thine inheritance well jesus he's going to get the nations they're going to come to him he's going to rule we just need to trust and believe in him and if, and if you think that that's too crazy or that's too far out, well, look at what verse 7 says in Isaiah 9. says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, what do we need to do? The message is simply this. I hope that when you're celebrating Christmas this year, that you are just filled with so much hope, joy, and encouragement because you know that your prophet, priest, and King Jesus Christ, he is going to fulfill his promises that he's made to you, fulfill the covenant he has made with his Father. He's going to save his people from their sins, and he'll rule forevermore. We just need to trust in him. We need to trust, trust the Lord your God, trust that God will take care of you, that he's going to love you, that he's going to provide for you, that his purposes in this world will not be thwarted. If you want proof of this, 2,000 years ago, a virgin gave birth. That's all the proof that you need. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He has sent us his spirit here and now. And with that being said, let us just close in a word of prayer. Father God, Father, we just thank you for your steadfast love. We, We thank you for the promises you've made in your word. Lord, we just ask that you would give us hope. We just ask that you would give us comfort and encouragement uh, in these dark times that that we live in. Father, let us not trust in in the wisdom of men. Let us not trust in the things of this world, but let us trust in in the great king whose kingdom is not of this world. And it is in his name, your beloved son, the apple of thy eye, 
in whose name we pray. Amen.